Good morning. God is good in all the time. And all God's people said, Amen. Even when it's raining. Amen. Today we're going to uh, finish our walk through Colossians. We'll be starting in Colossians 3. Uh, Before we go there, would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the the Bible that you've given us that speaks to us from your heart to our heart. And we pray today, Lord, as we finish our walk through Colossians, that you would especially anoint uh, us to become more and more like Jesus and to have more and more of Jesus in our lives. And especially for us to all to have Jesus be the supreme a preeminent thing in our lives. So help us and guide me, and we look to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In March of 1981, Bill Baker married Edna Harvey in London, England. Both of them were 76 years old. Their marriage created a number of problems, none of which had to do with their ages. The problem was Edna Harvey was Bill Baker's granddaughter's husband mother. Bill's granddaughter, Lynn, explained it this way. My mother-in-law was now my step-grandmother. My grandfather was now my stepfather-in-law. My mom became my sister-in-law and my brother became my nephew. But even crazier than that, my husband was now my uncle and my own children were my cousins. Family relationships can become complicated. Even for myself, I was raised with a stepfather, grew up with a stepsister, and have a half-brother. And most people have some straight lines in that, but a lot of us have those kind of things in our family. But today, family relationships continue to grow even more complicated in a culture and society that continues to try to redefine relationships and families by confusing in the area of gender and roles. But for those of us in Christ, there is no confusion. At the end of the third chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus defined relationships within the family of God as whoever does the will of God. In our text for this morning, the Apostle Paul will explain in detail how our relationships of family and the family of God in this world are to be lived out. Now remember, throughout all our walk through the Colossians, God's Word has challenged us who claim to know Jesus to live like Jesus and live for Jesus and live like we really do know Jesus. God's been telling us that it's not enough just to believe that Jesus is supreme and sufficient in our lives, but rather we have to live that out every moment of every day. We are to live for the glory of God and we are to live together for the glory of God as a corporate body and as individuals. This morning, God clearly defines for us how we can relationally live out the preeminence of Jesus Christ as God speaks through the mouthpiece of the Apostle Paul, 
about the supremacy of Christ in our own personal relationships. So today God puts before us how the supremacy of Jesus Christ can be lived out in the three key relationships that we all have. The first one, the supremacy of Christ, is God's model for marriage in our relationships. We see this in Colossians 1, chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, where Paul writes, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, the Bible views marriage as an issue in partnership in which each partner fills certain roles. And as Paul starts, he starts by focusing on the duty of wives in the marriage relationship. And there is probably no other biblical teaching more controversial in our society, in our culture, and quite often in the churches about what it means to have a wife in submission to her husband. The concept of submission is taught often in the Bible. It does not mean slavery. It does not mean or imply inferiority. The Greek word means to arrange oneself under a delegated authority and comes from the military world where soldiers put themselves under the direction of an officer. So what that means that in our homes, the wife is to put themselves under the delegated authority of her husband. Now there are many who claim in Christ who say that this concept is cultural rather than biblical. But the fact is, it's a principle of God. And if, just because it's unpopular, we can't ignore it or reject it. The reason for this submission is found at the end of the verse, as it is fitting in the Lord. Another way to say it is, this is what God has planned for us. A wife is to submit to her husband out of the same faithfulness that she has in Jesus Christ. This is not a cultural issue, but it represents God's relational order in the marriage relationship. It's not an issue of culture, but of created order. In 1 Timothy 2, we see that this is how made it in the beginning, for it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. We see God's purpose in this, in that submission carries with it the idea of entrusting oneself to the leadership of another in order to accomplish a greater purpose. When the wife submits to the Lord and to her husband, she will experience a release and a fulfillment that can come no other way. The end result will be an environment and relationship of intimacy and of growth and of ministry partnership that will transform not just your lives or your families, but the world. But husbands, before you start gloating and posting this verse on your wife's mirror, take a look at the next verse. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Throughout the Bible, God says more about the quality of a husband's leadership than he does about a wife's submission because the primary responsibility of a good marriage is put on the husband. Ephesians 5.25 tells us we are to love our our wives in the same way that Jesus loved the church. And so what that means for us husbands is or for me, that means I must love Nancy. We must love our wives, brothers. 
in order to make a marriage of goodness and of God rather than out of selfishness. This phrase, do not be harsh with them, can also be translated, don't become resentful of her. This means that even if a wife is not perfectly submissive, the husband is not to be in any way resentful. Husbands must prevent themselves becoming sour and critical in their attitude that can take root in, in, in marriages and destroy marriages. Brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, Jesus is to be the supreme person in your marriage. Amen? That's pretty good, amen. Secondly, the supreme, supremacy of Christ is also seen in God's principle for parenting relationships. This is in Colossians 3, 20 through 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And so, children are to listen and carry out the instructions of their parents. Obey here is in the present tense, which means it's to be a continuous thing in our lives. When a child obeys his or her parents in everything, God is pleased. And children, when you obey your parents, God has a promise for you. We read this in Deuteronomy 5. To honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well for you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Obedience brings God's pleasure. Obedience brings God's blessing of his promise. And in 1 Samuel 15, we read that God puts rebellion on par with witchcraft and idolatry. And because of the ramifications of disobedience and in view of the blessings of obedience, parents must seriously take up the task of training their children to obey. Yes, we need to be encouraging. Yes, we need to uh, uh, encourage and engage with our children, but we must also expect from them obedience. That's why Colossians 3.21 gives this awesome responsibility to fathers. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. There again, the husband, the father, has responsibility for for the family. But there are four things fathers can do to their children that will cause them to be discouraged. The first is ignore them. A father who has no time for his children soon creates within a child a deep-seated resentment. Children then grow up feeling unloved, unaccepted, and may end up looking somewhere else to get their needs met. Another way is to indulge our children. These types of fathers give their children everything they want, but the truth is, in life and in the Bible, there's a difference between what children want and what they need. Children who are indulged usually become restless, dissatisfied, and spoiled. Third, insult them. Some dads like to criticize their kids. Sarcasm and ridicule will cause a child to be very discouraged. And the last is intimidate them. Threats and unfair expectations will crush a child's soul and scar them for life. 
Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your child, children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Children do not become discouraged when fathers make it easy for them to obey. Well, how is it easy to obey? Well, when you, chil- when you teach your children self-discipline and instruct them in the ways of the Lord, they will be it, do it easily because they know the path. They know the rules. They know the boundaries. Children must be given the responsibility uh, according to their God-given ability so they can learn to submit to God-ordained, or God-ordained authority in this life and the life to come. So Christ is to be supreme in all these things in our parenting. Amen? Thirdly, the supremacy of Christ is also God's means for all relationships that we have in this world. Verse 22, we read, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now we come to Paul's teachers regarding relationships between slaves and their masters. And it's here we look into a larger context into which we live in our lives that we have, we have to be under authority, all of us, and some of us have people on authority under us. The Colossian church had no doubt uh, slaves and owners as their members. In fact, it's probably the only place in society in those days where those kinds of people, slaves and masters, could come together and be in common. Uh, <clears throat> at the time of Paul's writing, it's, it's estimated about 50% of the population of the Roman Empire was slaves. And know that slavery was not a racial issue in those days as it was for us today. Slaves were usually those who were defeated militarily and carried off by the conquerors. The Roman Empire ultimately lost its commitment to slavery as the gospel penetrated the culture and more masters and more slaves started to come together in Christ. God's word is telling us today, though, that Jesus is our master, and we are all to be relationally his slaves, his servants, in a way that reflects his supremacy in our lives. In our text here, we see three ways that we can relationally live out the supremacy of Christ in the fallen world that we live in. The first is we are to do the best. We are to do the very best all the time whether we work or we're pleasing ourselves. We're not to do anything in life for personal gain by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Because the world's not about me or you. It's about God. Secondly, we are to worship God in everything that we do. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. 
And thirdly, we are not to live our lives for worldly rewards, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Jesus calls us to live out our lives humbly and exceptionally and excellently and always, always for him. It's at this point, Paul, knowing that with our fallen nature, putting Jesus preeminent for us is really hard because it's usually us first before anybody else. And so what he does here, he stops and he gives us instructions as how to pray, how to pray for ourselves, how to pray for uh, other people. He tells us here how we can pray to have Jesus to become supreme in our life. Continue steadfastly in prayer, he says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And so when Paul wrote, continue steadfastly in prayer, he was strongly suggesting unrelenting persistence in prayer and how that brings about us a mindset that is focused on Christ. In Acts 2.42 we read, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers. In Luke 1, Jesus told his disciples that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. When Paul writes of being watchful, he's talking about being focused, focused on prayer. This brings to mind Jesus' words to his disciples on the night night before he was crucified. As he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Remain here and watch. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Focused prayer provides a spiritual fortitude to face down sin, evil, and temptation. Like a soldier that's on guard in the midst of war, we realize that we are in a battle for life and death as we are following, following Christ. And because we're in a spiritual battle, for our very souls, we need to stay on high alert. We have to be focused on our prayer. 1 Peter 5.8 tells us that, be sober-minded, be watchful. There's that word. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We also read that we are to pray with thanksgiving. Gratitude is a stimulus for prayer. Gratitude both for who God is in his holiness and power and glory in view of who we are as lost sinners and desperate in need of his mercy and grace. And in gratitude is what he has done and continues to do in our lives, his, his provision, his presence, his promises, and his purposes. Paul said this in 
Colossians 1.3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we what? When we pray for you. Well, verse 2 tells us how we should pray. Verse 3 and 4 tells us what we should pray for. And the first thing we should pray for is to pray for opportunities to proclaim the gospel. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. It is more than significant that Paul is writing these words as he sits in prison, not asking for prayers that he would be released or better food or better conditions. Instead, he prayed that he could shine for Jesus, that I could share the gospel. Too often we pray for a a change of circumstance or a change of conditions rather than the condition of our own heart and our opportunities to share who Jesus is. Because Paul embraced the supremacy of Christ in his whole, whole life, he constantly prayed for open doors and opportunities. And while we should pray for doors of opportunity and to proclaim Jesus, we also should pray that in the midst of doing that, that we will clearly be heard in presenting the gospel. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to talk. One of the great failures of our witness is any kind of way that we share the gospel most of the time seems to just be too, wave, too, too vague for people, too, too little, you know, too, not enough. You just maybe a little worried that there's going to be somebody offended or something like that. No, you can't do that. You've got to tell the gospel, speak the gospel, proclaim the gospel. Once a door is open, we must clearly proclaim that mystery of Christ. A lot of Christian witness in in these days is pretty cloudy. As we've learned in Colossians, the mystery of our faith is that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And that when we repent repent and confess our sins and surrender our lives to Christ, he will give us a new life today and forever. This is the thing that we call as Christ in you, the hope and glory. God's word then tells us that the supremacy of Christ can also be seen in the way that we talk to people about God. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The phrase, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, exhorts us to live a life so full of Jesus Christ that we would never say or do anything that would be a barrier for the gospel in their lives. Often, this simply means we need to remember most people we talk to don't need Jesus, don't know Jesus at all. They, they have no clue. And so the only way they're going to see it is when they see it in us. And it's not what we say and do, it's what our, what's our attitude? What are our thoughts? How do we approach them? Often it's just like it says right here that we need to be gracious in that. Jesus sent his disciples out to spread the good news of the gospel. And in Matthew 10, 16, he told them that needed to be, they needed to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Now that doesn't mean we're supposed to be sneaky or deceitful. Rather, it's a, it's a heart attitude towards someone. 
God's word speaks to us about that in Romans 16 when, when it challenges us to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. This is also true today in our witness in the church, in the way that we speak to each other. Gossip and criticism and complaining about one another does reach the ears of the people outside. If Christ in you, the hope of glory, is truly at work in our lives, we will then be compelled to use every door of opportunity, every word that comes out of our mouth to do spiritual good and build relationships. Amen? Let your speech always be gracious, Paul writes. It's important we communicate with words of grace to each other and in others, and especially so to people who don't know Jesus. What we should, what we say should reflect the supreme uh, presence of Christ in our life. Our call in Christ is to be like Jesus, and he was the perfect embodiment of both grace and truth. Even when he dealt with sinners, he spoke words of grace. In Luke 4, after listening to Jesus preach, after listening to Jesus teach, Luke writes, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So salt enhances flavor. It makes food appetizing. But salt also makes one thirsty. So if the way that we live for Christ, the way we talk about Christ is to be full of flavor and cause those to watch, to hear and hunger and drink more of what this uh, is all about, we need to be clear. We need to be open-hearted. And then when they respond with hunger and thirst, we should be ready to tell them what to say. When people hunger and thirst for Jesus, brothers and sisters, they want an explanation. They want to know more. This is a natural process that happens to people when they see, when they see Jesus in us. In 1 Peter 3, he writes, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. What we say should reveal that Jesus is supreme in our lives. It is here that Paul shifts into speaking to about, or from what, about what we say reveals Jesus. Now he's going to talk about what we do that reveals Jesus. Basically, he's saying your walk needs to match your talk. Or our words and actions should be the same. The remaining verses of our text are focused on this. And he does this in a way in telling us what that looks like in some of the people he has served with in his ministry. And while we honor Paul as one of the greatest apostles, as he passionately served the cause of Christ, he worked with many people for that common cause for the gospel. Uh, the The reality is we don't do these things alone. We don't We don't do ministry alone. Paul served alongside Jesus with a number of others, and they had the supremacy of Christ in their lives to varying degrees. So Paul gives us kind of the whole big horizon of what this looks like. And Paul first gives us five different examples of how the preeminence of Jesus was seen 
in those who were faithful in their service. And the first faithful servant Paul mentions is uh, Tychicus in Colossians 4, 7 and 8. Tychicus, we will tell you about all my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus had three responsibilities. He delivered Paul's letters to the churches. He let them know how Paul was doing and he encouraged the people in the churches. Paul was confident in giving Tychicus these responsibilities because Tychicus was faithful. He calls him here a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant. The second servant, faithful servant, is Aristarchus. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Aristarchus stayed with Paul no matter what his circumstances were. He risked his life during the riot in Ephesus. He sailed to Paul, sailed with Paul to Rome. He suffered through the shipwreck that we read of there. And now he is a fellow prisoner with Paul. The third faithful servant is Jesus, or Justice, in verse 11. Jesus, who was called Justice, we read here in his greetings. The name Jesus was very popular. It's kind of like John, kind of that kind of name in those days. Most likely, Jesus used his Roman name Justice after his conversion to gain the open doors in the Roman Empire. The fourth faithful servant uh, Paul writes of is Luke in verse 14. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Dr. Luke played a, a very important role in Paul's life. He traveled with Paul during his third missionary journey. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote the book of Acts. Luke took care of Paul when he was getting beaten and when he was suffering in prison. Luke was a highly educated um, uh, and highly trained, yet he chose to use his gifts to serve the kingdom. Everything else was secondary to him. Jesus was, was primary. Luke's faithfulness was even seen at the end of Paul's life when he wrote in 2 Timothy 4, Luke alone is with me. Paul's fifth servant demonstrated her faithfulness by turning her home into a church. Her name was Nympha. We read of her in verse 15. Give my greetings to the brothers in Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Paul at this point wanted to make sure that he gave special attention to this woman who opened her home for the fellowship for like the early the first shepherd groups, put it that way. Paul recognized the, the critical role that kind of ministry would have that we still have today. After giving us five different examples of how the preeminence of Jesus was seen in those faithfully who served Paul, uh, God, Paul then gives an example of a man who reflected uh, fervent ministry for God. His name was Epiphras. We read this in... Uh, <clears throat> our next verses. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and full, fully assured in all of the will of God. For I bear him witness 
that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Epaphras was the evangelist who planted the church in Colossae and labored in teaching, labored in shepherding as the church's first pastor. Paul tells us that Epaphras was a prayer warrior. He was always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. The verb always struggling is the same word for the way that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, like blood kind of praying. Here again we see that prayer is the battle. Prayer is the only personal means that we have to defeat the enemy of our souls. It's in this list of servants of God that Paul gives us a glance also, one that became a casualty of that war as they faltered in serving God. This is the case of Archippus in verse 17. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now we really don't know much more about Archippus except that Paul writes here and for some reason Archippus was neglecting the ministry that he had been given by God. And so Paul reminds him to to get busy and be serious and focus and finish what you've been called to do. And we don't know the reason why Archippus fell back but we do know that sometimes all of us need a kick in the pants, a divine kick in the pants, to get moving, quit stalling, pay attention, listen to God's call, fulfill your ministry like he says here. In that same vein, Paul also gives us a glance of another one who was a casualty, the spiritual war, and it comes in the midst of the battle of having Jesus to be preeminent in you and His name is Damis. In verse 14, we read that along with Luke, greets you, does Damis. It's kind of like Paul was saying, oh yeah, and Damis too. Uh, This this is a shift for Paul. Damis uh, was close for a while with Paul. He was from Thessalonica and was part of the original group that traveled with Paul. In Philemon 24, he's called a fellow worker. But in today's text, Paul simply calls him Damas because Paul had become aware of the spiritual drift in his faith. He had a fickle faith at that point. 2 Timothy 4.10, written five years later, he writes, For Damas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Ultimately, Damas became more in love with the world than he was with Jesus and we still don't know, but we're probably assured that he wasn't saved. In that same vein, again, Paul again gives us a glance of two who were casualties of the spiritual war, <clears throat> but who turned around and were forgiven. While scripture in does indicate that Damis became spiritually lost, these two others, <clears throat> Paul mentions even after serious mistakes in their faith. The first forgiven one is Onesimus. We read about him in verse 9. Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. We know a lot about Onesimus in the book of Philemon. Philemon was a slave from the city of Colossae, and his owner was Philemon. Onesimus had run away from Philemon 
and gone to Rome where he stumbled into Paul. And it was there through Paul's influence that he came to faith. And Paul urged Onesimus to go back to his master. And in Philemon 1.12, we read that Paul convinced Philemon to do so. He said, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart, he writes. Philemon forgave Onesimus and received him as a beloved brother, and Jesus became preeminent in his life. The second forgiven servant was Mark. We see that in verse 23 where we read also his greetings. Mark wrote the gospel of Mark for Peter, and he was the cousin of Barnabas. At first, Mark and Paul uh, did not get along very well. When Paul and Barnabas launched their first missionary journey, Mark went, them, Mark went with them, but when things got tough, Mark bailed out and went home. Later, when Paul and Barnabas were getting ready to go on their second trip, Paul refused to take Mark along. This caused so much disagreement between Paul and Barnabas that they decided to split up, and Mark went with Barnabas. But soon after, Paul extended mercy and grace and forgave Mark to such a degree that he trusted him implicitly and wanted to Mark to be with him even at the end of his life. In 2 Timothy 4, we read, he writes, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful for me for ministry. The supremacy of Christ can be seen, it seems to be, most clearly when we talk about forgiveness in these things because probably most of us are in this last category. He is the image of God. Excuse me, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, that in everything, that in everything, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile for himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus is superior. Jesus is first in everything. Everything we say and do in our marriages, in our families, in our churches, in this world should be done in submission to the Master who truly, truly loves us and who truly, truly lives in us too. The true test of the supremacy of Christ in our lives can be seen in how we relate to one another as husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and children and brothers and sisters in the body of Christ as we all relate to the majority in the world who do not know Jesus at all. And so my, my prayer, my call for us is that may Jesus be so supreme in our lives that we can do nothing but passionately proclaim the glory of God in Christ for the joy of all people. And that by maybe even next year, next year, many people know Jesus 
many, many, because of our heart for God. Amen? Amen. Father, we bless you today for this letter that Paul wrote thousands of years ago. And we, Lord, still feel and know and hear that these are truths for us as your people. And so, Lord, I beg that you would have used these weeks and even this sermon this morning to help us take that step forward, to live reckless abandon, full bore for you. We love you, we praise you, and we give ourselves to you. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.